0: joining us again today today we're going to have another very interesting show I have two gentlemen here both of whom are professors in the area of uh, anthropology and the uh, anthropology of religion one dr. David Palmer is an associate professor of anthropology Department of Sociology in the Institute for the Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Hong Kong. He's briefly in the United States for a, uh, a conference on religion. He completed his PhD in Anthropology of Religion at the École Pratique de haute Études in Paris, but he was the Eileen Barker Fellow in Religion and Contemporary Society at the London School of Economics and Political Science from 2004 to 2008. Very interesting gentleman who partnered with, co-authored, very interesting book, which will be the subject of today's show, his old schoolmate from Toronto, Dr. Elijah Siegler. Elijah is a professor of religious studies at the College of Charleston in South Carolina. He has degrees from Harvard University and the University of California in Santa Barbara. He's published an introductory textbook on new religious movements and articles about religion in film and television, on American Taoism, the subject of today's show largely, and on religious studies in pedagogy. So, the These two have come together, and they have written a very interesting book that, by the way, has at its center my dear friend and colleague, Michael Nguyen, who has been on these airwaves a number of times, called Dream Trippers. Now, for many years, Michael has been leading journeys, adventures in Taoism in China, and in some interesting way, recreating ancient China For those of us, yes, us, I've been on the trip a couple of times, Michael, uh, acting as his assistant uh, leader on these trips, uh, at least once. And we have gone to these incredible ancient Taoist temples and sacred mountains in order to learn and study and practice the Taoist way, as he understands it from his learning in the United States as well as his learning with various Taoist masters in the East. So these two gentlemen, David Palmer and Elijah Siegler, have really put together a compendium of information and ways of understanding Taoism, as it has moved from uh, the ancient mountains of China to the shores of the West. So I want to welcome you both to A Better World.
1: Thank, thank you, thank, thank you so nice much. To be here. Pleasure yep. to
0: have you both. Uh, now, uh, this is quite uh, an adventure you two went <laughs> on, and it's just remarkable that you both grew up together in Toronto. You both then went into the field of religion, and you both became professors. <laughs> I just think that's an amazing synchronicity. And then you both ended up meeting Michael Wynn and going on these China dream trips. As, as, well. as well, once at least like together, together and once perhaps each of you right? separately. That's right. and, and you decided I to come together to write this book. book. What, what was the original
1: was the inspiration, inspiration for this, Elijah? Um, well, so, so my, my doctoral doctor dissertation, dissertation at UC Santa Barbara was on American Taoism. So, so what I looked at were uh, masters who came from China, from China or the China Chinese world over to America, America in the 20th century. So people like Chen Manqing, um, Al Yi Nihua Qing, Nantak Chia, who then later became Michael Wynn's teacher, Um, a guy who immigrated to Toronto from Hong Kong, and Moilin Shin, who set up the Dallas Tai Chi Society, and several more. So that was the subject of my dissertation, uh, kind of the movement from east to west. And, and the changes, changes, you know, with the, the practices, practices and the, the knowledge that they brought over, and then, they how, over, and then they how they formed American Dallas, Dallas communities. Uh, so when, when I finished, finished that, out, I was looking for my next research, research project, project, and, and I, I, noticed I noticed that some, some of these groups, groups especially Michael group, group, were actually going back to China and, to China and meeting Dallas monks there. there. And, and so I thought it was a great project for me and my friend David to go on. So in 2004, we we kind, kind of were of observers, observers for, um, this, this dream trip that trip Michael and, uh, took, and so we were there for not the whole trip, but for most of us, we were there for, for uh, for two, um, uh, uh, uh,
2: two different uh, mountain
1: two different sites, different uh, mountain uh, Mount Qingcheng in Sichuan province, province British, which, uh, Michael uh, describes as kind of a softer yin energy and mountain. mountain, and, and then, then, uh, Mount Hua, Hua Shan, um, in Shanxi province, which, Became kind of the site. And what was going going on in Pasha was so interesting. All these interactions between the Western American Taoists, you know, Dream Crippers, as Michael calls them, and that's the title of our book, and then the the Taoist monks um, that that, that they were uh, interacting with. So we've we've got a whole book here.
2: And, and so we spent, spent the, the next 12 years,
1: years uh, following up with these American Dalits and interviewing, and, interviewing and interviewing Michael Wynn many times. And then David, David, who's Chinese is excellent, spent years and years and interviewing these Dalit monks. and, and know Hall. them really well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, then eventually we, you know, so put this book together. So interesting.
0: It's, uh, <laughs> I, love I love it because it. I watched the whole thing <laughs> be given birth to. Yeah. You know, having been friends with Michael going back to the early eighties, mm-hmm. uh, both as a friend and as a student of Qi Kong, et cetera, et cetera. Um and Montauk mm-hmm. Chia as well. Uh I kind of was there at the birth, if you will.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: to see and hear of what you two perceived and recognized the substance of from outside, so to speak, uh-huh. is just it's very heartening. For people like Michael and myself mm-hmm. to to see that you recognize the the weightiness, if you will, and as well as the potential for great scholarship here and development of uh, what you could call an American Taoism. So, David, what was your part in this? How did you get inspired to to collaborate on this?
2: Well, yeah. So, you know, uh, what's interesting is that. Um, uh, when I was in college, I studied uh, anthropology and Chinese, um, and um, I went to China in 1993, uh, and at that time, I already had the idea of studying what at the at the time was called ethno-psychiatry. Um, I was interested in studying with a professor in Paris who was looking at How do uh, different cultures in the world, how do they look at illness and healing? So I went to China. Were you studying
0: with Michel Foucault? Actually, one
2: of his students. His name is Toby Nathan. Um, And um, so I went to, after graduating from college, I went to uh, Paris and to meet different professors. And I met with this professor and he said, okay, go to China and become the student of a traditional healer there. So uh, And then you can come back to Paris and be my student. So I went to China, and I went as an English teacher, and just to get a sense of the place, I was uh, living in southwest China in Chengdu, not far from Shan. This was 1993, and within a few days... Chengdu, which
0: is over toward Tibet.
2: That's right, yeah. That's right. We went there a
0: couple of times on the dream trip.
2: Yeah, yeah. So it's just a few, about 30 miles... Uh, east of the mountains uh, that uh, that become the mountains of the Tibetan Plateau. And when I was there, only, uh, I'd say, uh, within days of my arriving uh, in this, this school, the Cadres College of the Sichuan Petroleum Administration. So I was there to teach these officials and cadres from the oil fields around China. And one of these uh, geologists, um, who was my student, he came to me and he he said, hey, why don't you come? We have a healing session that's going on. Uh, and this was in the auditorium of the socialist work unit. And so we, I went there, followed along, and uh, they said, this is a Qigong master. And uh, so I was in there and everybody was uh, sitting there. And there was a man uh, standing on the stage wearing a... Tacky Western-style business suit, uh, talking and talking, and it just seemed like he's doing a lecture. Uh, didn't seem like anything really special. Was your
0: Chinese good enough to understand? At that
2: time, it was very, it was still, you know, only a little. Uh, over the years, I became fluent in the language, but at that time, uh, but. You know, he's talking about Chinese, about yin and yang and Chinese philosophy, and I just, it looked like an academic lecture until half the people in the room started falling onto the ground and rolling all over the place and burping and laughing and shrieking and crying. And then I was told he was sending Qi. Uh, and this was my, my first experience of Qigong, Your initiation. my <laughs> initiation into Qigong, which was huge in China at the time. So this was what was called Qigong fever. There were hundreds of millions of people in China all over the place uh, who were practicing in the mornings, uh, in the parks, in the, uh, on the sidewalks, in the sports grounds and so I said okay this is it this is what I this is what I'm here to study so I did my study on the whole history of what was going on uh, in China were you
0: affected yourself personally in your body oh sure from what happened that evening not that
2: evening um, no uh, but later another one of my students he was himself a qigong master I mean in those days they were all over the place um and so uh, he himself was a master or a disciple of a master, and he was running a, tra- a practice session every morning at 6 a.m. in the basketball court. So I went, and, and that was the beginning. And I was practicing, and all these things of uh, moving chi around and working with it and feeling it, you know, when it was sent to me and so on. That, yes, absolutely.
1: So, um,
2: so I did... Um, that was the beginning of my, of my research on what was, I mean, not only this was, of course, the phenomenon of qi, and it's powerful, and it was affecting a lot of people, so there was enormous enthusiasm in China about it, and this became a huge social phenomenon. The government was also deeply involved in it and was actually promoting it in many ways. So I was promoting it, promoting it yes. Um, you know, this mind over matter thing, The expense sending qi, I mean, people saw it in the highest levels of the Chinese government. They saw it as the beginning of a new scientific revolution that China would be at the forefront of. Um,
0: well, that they really sort of had rights.
2: Well, they certainly did. They thought they they certainly saw it that way. But there's a however
0: in here. However,
2: things started going bad, right? Um, those energies were hard to handle, and uh, you had a lot of crazy things going on. People, This is, after all, an officially atheist country, but people had visions of gods, and they were channeling spirits, and... And then you had guru and cultic phenomena. And then you had Falun Gong. It became political. Uh, uh, And so it was all crushed by the government. And that was pretty much the end of Qigong in China. And when did that happen? In 1999, right? So I had done my Ph.D., dissertation on the history of this whole movement from the founding of the People's Republic of China, the Communist China in 1949 until 1999 um, and I was writing all that up as a book and Elijah called me and he said hey, I've been studying all these American Qigong practitioners and they're going to China so why don't we do this together I could look at the what is the, how do the Chinese see this these Americans going there um, you know, how do the Taoist monks there at Huashan what would they think of it all? And so that's how we, we joined forces, for Elijah to look at it from the American side, and I would look at it from the Chinese side, and see what happens when an americanized Taoism, right, uh, and people like uh, Michael Wynn and others have really merged it into an American way of doing things, um, absorbed it, and... Um, digested it you could say into uh american culture so what happens when that americanized Taoism comes back to china and so what would happen and that's what we decided to study
0: so interesting also because i was part of it right right. i was there bearing witness to the
1: Uh
0: alchemy you could Uh say and uh you know, there was maybe a little oil and water, but mm-hmm. I think it became emulsified, ultimately. <laughs> but uh, I'm also thinking as I'm listening to you, David, of uh, another good friend, Robert Pang, who I don't know if either of you know him, but uh, I met him actually originally through Michael, although we became quite good friends here, and he was on A Better World TV mm-hmm. many years ago, uh, brought to me by another mutual friend, Ra- uh, Rafi Nasser who I don't think Rafi's ever been on one of his trips, but he uh, was an apprentice, basically, of Robert, Robert Pang. And Robert, Robert, I thought of him as I you were telling the story about the gentleman, about the gentleman wearing tacky suits, wearing tacky suits <laughs> in, you know, giving the lecture where, <laughs> where people, people were falling fall in the aisle. You know, you know Robert, Robert has an extraordinary story of being raised uh, in very, very rural, rural China, China uh-huh. where he... Hopped upon a fellow who was overseeing a boiler in the town, in the village. Uh, that was his job. He just uh, made sure the boiler had enough water and steam and everything else. And he started to play with Robert, and uh, the guy was—I uh, don't know if he was Buddhist. He could have been Buddhist also, but certainly Dallas and taught Robert Robert Qigong as an age five or six years old, Uh Uh and it became very controversial because this was not allowed at this point, Uh and uh, Robert and his parents could have gotten into a lot of trouble. Uh It ended 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 up, up, it followed followed suit uh in Uh what you were saying here, David, which is that Robert ended up, Going on a long-term retreat under the auspices of the teacher of it uh-huh. in a cave for I don't know I don't remember right uh-huh. now thirty sixty days uh-huh. and becoming uh-huh. rather visionary himself and uh-huh. really becoming rather masterful in his uh, mastery of chi uh-huh. and came back and had a multi multi thousand maybe even million person following
2: uh-huh. and had
0: some of his students being. Uh, being um, in government, Uh so they bore witness in their own body to
2: healing that
0: were taking place through his use of Uh chi of some very serious degenerative conditions.
2: Mm. So at first
0: he was accepted, and then it got to a point which it must be that cliff that you said when it was decided this is dangerous and it should be made illegal, and it was made illegal, and and Robert had to flee. (laughs) Uh-huh. <laughs> well, he's in New York now, but uh-huh. via yeah. Australia and a whole long, interesting history. Right. Anyway, right. I just thought I would right. share that with you because it's in line with and sync with the history you were just laying out. Right. So, right. 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 very right. interesting. So, Elijah, what did you find when you were studying American Taoism
1: with a D? <laughs> Um for indulging our spelling, spelling, the the, the, the kind, kind of the modern spelling of Taoism. Okay. But uh, so I found that American Taoism was well suited or Taoism was well suited to kind of the American um counterculture. Yeah, the American counterculture that's you know, that for for you know, really since the nineteenth century Americans have been looking east, you know, I mean it's it, Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists were the first yes, people to indeed. introduce kind of a vocabulary of Asian uh, technology, Asian spiritual technology, Asian terms. Um, the World Parliament of Religions in 1893 in Chicago brought swamis and Zen masters to America to, for the first time, and then they... Uh, went on tour. People like Swami Vivekananda who Vivekananda. started the, the, the Vedanta place. So there's been a been a long interest. Taoism like, relatively came late to the scene. There weren't really active Taoist teachers in America for a long time. Um, it was more the Indian Vedic teacher Yeah, yeah. And then Buddhist, you know, and also Buddhism. Um, and Buddhism, yeah. Yeah, but because Taoism, you know, in southern China is kind of a a smaller religion. Taoism really doesn't have a big need to propagate itself. You, you have, have to, to come, come to Taoism. Taoism is not going to come to you. you know, like unlike Buddhism, Buddhism, which is a great missionary tradition that spread throughout Asia, and then sort of naturally it's going to spread to the United States. Bodhi or, Dharma. Yeah, yeah, right, right. All these, you know. So Taoism is really um, a tradition based on um, local, you know, localities and based on a master to student transmission. So when it came to um, America, you know, it came sort of quietly through martial arts, through interest in. Uh, reading the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu through divining through the Jing, you know, these little pieces started to come yes.
2: together.
1: But in some ways, it's it's You could say
0: Taoist thought was being kind of implicated and insinuated through these other vehicles. Exactly,
1: exactly. That's Getting into
0: the bloodstream.
1: Yeah, indirectly. People started understanding, you know, yin-yang cosmology and the idea of the Tao. Being in the flow. Yeah, and in, and in some, some ways, ways it was great for well, the sixties, right? Yeah, yeah and then, then in the sixties it merged, merged, you know, I mean it was those types of things were caught at Esalen, and it really kind of um merged well with the human potential movement and the sexual revolution of the sixties. Um we were also getting hints of a kind of um you know, kind of uh Chinese exotic kind of sexuality which which Westerners were interested in. Like there was there was this idea that, you know, Chinese attitudes towards sex were we much healthier than Western attitudes which I don't know if that's true on a day-to-day level, but certainly there's a kind of Dallas knowledge, right, of sexual practice that, that that's something that Mantechia, you know, could sell to the West very easily. <laughs> well but, but,
0: because, but also the idea of a more elaborated, perhaps even more sophisticated understanding of a larger yeah, landscape of sexuality, yeah, that it wasn't yeah. just simply sort of a uh, an orgasmic matter Yeah. Uh, you know, rather quick as they say, wham bam. Yeah. But rather that it was even wedded to some extent with a contemplative practice right. and that it had a certain focal point, of course, which is the pleasure of a woman. Yeah. You know, and and that one would be in a man would be in in some level of of of, uh, of
1: subservience to that. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
0: Subordination and service is
1: the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what I'm saying?
0: It's it's a much larger picture of the use of sensuality, intimacy, Mm -hmm. touching, uh, and orgasm. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And just the powerful. The use of Qi. Right. The the powerful, you know, the the sexual energy, you know, in Chinese Jing, you know, which then you can actually refine you know into chi and into cultivate qi. yeah and that's kind of the alchemical uh, form and it's very different from uh you know western notions so uh so, so yeah so, so, I, so I found that what, one of the things that the appealed American to Americans about Taoism was that it had that kind of um, do-it-yourself quality. And I think American, American culture is, a, is an individualist culture. culture. It's a do-it-yourself so culture. So when, when there's I'm something that comes that's over that's like, well, you don't need a, a master necessarily. Here are these techniques. You can do them yourself in kind of the order you want to. You can make your own practice. Um, I think that's the part of Taoism that became very appealing to Americans. Interesting. Interesting. Um, and, of course, if you look at Taoism in China, it's a highly ritualized religion. It has a, it has a, it has a, a liturgy, you know, like a, a religious service. Um, there, are, there are codes. There are Taoist moral codes, and there have been for thousands of years. But, but Americans aren't that interested in that part, right? They're, they're, I mean, some are, and some are getting more – as these trips go on, people are getting more and more exposed to that, and are coming to appreciate it, I think, uh, but that's not, you know, that's not the. So if you look at Taoism today in America, it's a very individualized kind of personal practice. Even as compared to American Buddhism, you know, if you look at American Buddhism, they have big, they're you know, big monasteries and, and meditation centers all over the country. You know, they have sort of physical space. Taoism, you know, meets in smaller spaces. They meet in, you know, um, they meet in caves. Yeah, <laughs> they go to on and meet in caves and stuff. So yeah, those are some of my findings investigating American Taoism. Very interesting. I, I understand like the how you're saying the American psyche yeah. would very much
0: cotton—no pun intended—I know you're from South Carolina—to <laughs> yeah. um, to, to uh, the practices because they're understood. But my understanding of the original Dallas was not as a religion at all. I'd love to hear Mm -hmm. what you both have to say about this. It was more a series of practices of natural hygiene, if you will. I I guess I have this idea of the wandering uh, Chinese fellow. In the woods, he's eaten enough, not hungry, got nothing to do, and he starts watching the birds. (laughs) And he starts watching the bees. and And he starts watching the cranes. And he's really getting tuned into nature. So from a Western neurological neuroscientific point of view, you could say he's going into a deep alpha state and a beta state. His brain and his heart are becoming coherent and the prefrontal cortex is developed to such an extent that he's experiencing the sense of the unified field. That idea that we have from religion of of or from spirituality of, of a unified unity consciousness. And so he is truly not limited at all to man, but I'm just using that as an example for this. Uh, unifying with the natural world and then by extension the heavenly world, the celestial world. And he cannot even necessarily see a boundary between himself and the world in which he inhabits. The boundary the brain is melted, if you will. And And so so as a result, he can also meditate and even see his organs, because and see the energy fields, what we call, of course, the meridian. So it's an entirely different worldview and cosmo-view. So that, over time, ripens into something that we might call a religion, because as this knowledge became a little bit more popularized,
1: people in villages
0: get married, they have children, people die, and everyone, there's this, there's this uh, impulse toward having ritual around certain rites of passage in life, and it seeks acknowledgement, commemoration, celebration, etc. And hence,
2: we have this thing called Taoism.
0: But it's really sort of a secondary thought to the juice and the essence of the Tao and the Taoist practice. Your thoughts, David? Um
2: Yeah, that's an interesting um that Maybe that made it all off. I don't know. I
0: don't know so, but yeah, yeah, through. yeah. So um
2: that's an interesting way of putting the history of Taoism. Um <clears throat> because um um and I think that's one strand of the of the history of Taoism, as you say. This, uh, you know, uh, there, there's the, the so-called um, what was early on in the Han Dynasty, what was called the Fangshu, the Masters of Recipes, and uh, and other hermit traditions of individuals who would go right. They would be in there um, observing um, uh, observing the birds and the bees and the stars and uh, gaining this connection. And from that kind of connection, learning about various techniques which they would use on their own bodies and and on the bodies of others. But there's something that also happens, though, and that continues to happen with people who are engaged uh, in that kind of um, observation and cosmic unity, is that they get um, what they or what we, or they now, you know, call deities or spirits communicate with them. So, what we call, for instance, the Taoist religion, Tao Jiao, um, is the result of uh, what Zhang Daoling, in the the second century AD, uh, he received these revelations from... What was understood to be Laozi, a divinized Laozi. So something happens, some kind of messages are received. divinized Deified? Deified, yes. So these are not, um, so it's not just a dump to, oh, we need riches now, right? Um, so the, the appearance of all kinds of gods and Taoism has just as many deities as hinduism okay Uh, now many americans are not aware of that (laughs) but it's just so full of deities and an incredible pantheon Um, and um, so this is uh, this is one uh, when we look at the history of uh, Taoism as a religion Of course, we can look at it in terms of its socio-political constructions, and that's definitely there. The Chinese state actually has often had a hand in how these things are organized. Um, Local communities as well. It's completely intertwined in the need for constructing a community life with its rituals and so on. And yet there is something that's not just that that, People are receiving they're communicating with beings or conscious entities um
0: ancestors ancestors
2: as well now just to give an example um many um, um uh, in in chinese uh, villages you'll you find temples uh, temples to deities. Often local deities, or maybe not local deities um and often actually there 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 are many types of deities, and there are two types that are interesting for our conversation um, One is that you might have uh, and this is a very uh, a very uh a very uh widely worshipped goddess in South China. her name is Tianhou ho in Hong kong Matsu in uh in Southeast China and Taiwan, and so this was a young woman um, who um, she uh, she was in a fisherman, a family of fishermen. And this is so a, a real person uh, in the uh, about a thousand years ago, and um, uh, her her father and brothers go out fishing, and there's a, a hurricane, a typhoon, and they're about to be. Uh, you know, just okay. and consumed um, um, And um, um, she, she pray, pray And uh, her, her father, father and brother father, Anyway, everything's okay right? right? So the the the, the, the they're, they're safe and sound And they They have the sense and There are many versions of the story But they have the sense that it's her Right? Now, okay, who knows? Um, it's just a story But she dies at a young age And after that, different people have dreams of her, okay? And then then they start start worshiping her. So she starts to become a popular goddess. And then people in worshiping her, they have their illnesses, they have their problems in life. So they burn incense to her, and then they see their situation getting better. So they start building a shrine to her, and then the shrine becomes a temple.
1: So, so, there's
2: something, something that's going on in the interaction between people and these deities. So, that's one example. And another example is actually the Taoist cultivator. So, the Taoist cultivator, um, as we know through, yeah, you know, let's say, Laozi and Zhuangzi and so on, so actually somebody who has been um, mostly um, focused on his own internal cultivation and then becomes an immortal, so it is that. Well having become the immortal again he appears in dreams and revelations to other people. And um and so he in the Taoist lore, in the way it is said, so now he's an immortal, so he's helping people, okay? So he comes so he he he, he brings healing to people who worship him, right? So a cult i.e. a worship, a shrine, a temple is built. So we can see this whole religious dimension to Taoism um, is something that's actually directly tied in with uh, people's uh, experiences, um, experiences and messages or communications that come through, um, through visions and dreams, um, uh, spirit writing even, uh, that's still practiced in Hong Kong. So there are things that happen, and what, no matter how you explain it, uh, whether but you, we have to see that part of uh, people's experience of communicating with deities, and that is at the root of um, what is called a religious Taoism. So it's not. I, I don't. think It's reasonable to say that it's simply. Um, Somehow they lost it. You know, they were in this pure cultivation, and then they lost it by becoming more and more religious. Um, There might be something to be said about, uh, you know, once it gets over-elaborate and so on and so forth. But the way this has evolved, uh, is very complicated in Chinese history, but an important part of it is, um, right that kind of communication that goes on between individuals and deities and between communities and and deities. And that's an important piece of the story.
0: Very good. Thank you for that illumination. And I didn't mean to say that once ritual began, uh, and the ism got attached to the word da that yeah, it was now, down a lower sentence. I didn't mean to reply some people say that. Yeah. 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 No, no, I wasn't actually, doing that, yeah. but yeah, yeah. I was talking about some level uh, of, you know, in Buddhism, the pure right, land, you know, right, this right, idea right. of a pure time and era, right. and uh, that there was a I don't want to say even evolution, but rather the meeting of the needs of people that are secular,
1: right. if you will, mm-hmm.
0: to use that language, if you don't mind. Just and therefore ritual. But, but what you've done here, David, has helped me understand actually the richness of what happened when, let's just say, Taoist thought spread to the local people Uh from the forest, if you will. And they, sort of like those people that were falling out of their chairs in the face of a Qigong teacher, people themselves are getting inspired. From that point of view, it's very much a populist to bring in another dimension. A populist movement where everyone gets to participate, not some mediator like a priest or a rabbi or a of some sort, but everybody's sort of in on it, and they have their own direct relationship to the world of the and Pantheon and ancestors and vision. So it's kind of interesting. I want to just pause for one moment to uh, let everyone know you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. Hi, I'm so glad you're joining us today. It's a very interesting conversation with these two gentlemen. Uh, We are on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. If you do not yet get our newsletter, we have a free newsletter, and it is available at www.abetterworld.tv. abetterworld.tv, I think it's in the right-hand column. Just push a button, give us your email address, and we'll send it to you so you know what shows we will be doing on Wednesdays, as well as our community television show here in the Big Apple. Manhattan in New York City, every Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, of course. And come come part of the better world community. We'd love to have you. And it's these kinds of discussions that we have, uh, helping people understand the dimensions of creating a better world to take place in all dimensions. And uh, it's uh, one that we're exploring right now is very interesting, is looking at the history of Taoism both East and West, and what happens with their confluence, which is really the subject of today's show. So, it's a real pleasure to have you here at A Better World and talking about these things.
2: It's a lot of
0: fun to me, because it was actually just to go back a little bit in my own personal history for a moment, uh, when I read Bouncy, when I was in uh, high school, at age 16, because I was taking a course called Oriental Studies. <laughs> we don't use the word Oriental much anymore, do we? The Orient. I don't know. For me, it means very serious and mystic. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> By, you know, politics or what have you. Um, and, uh, I read that, and, and I was born to a Jewish family, culturally Jewish, Jewish I would say, not religiously, um, for which I Grateful, by the way. Um, although I did very much appreciate the uh, overall tenor of the family. And my mother was atheist. But she had books on Taoism and Buddhism and uh Zoroastrianism and uh animism and all sorts of things. It was sort of like her own anthropologist um of religion, you know. And um so I was always looking around in this class I read Lao Tzu and even though my family was eventually atheistic, I myself had an inner experience as a result of reading the book, the the verses, that I couldn't put my finger on. It felt like it dislodged a certain kind of neural program I had and let in a little fresh air that there was something bigger and beyond the generally materialistic interpretation of reality that we have and inherit in the West, sort of almost in our DNA. And this gave me a little altitude to that and a little inner space. And I went to talk about that with my mother, like, oh, wait a minute, there's something going on here. He's got a little bit of a sense of humor. He's got a certain kind of lightness here. And he's pointing towards something beyond our ordinary understanding.
1: Nah, nah, nah.
0: Nah, (laughs) nah. you sure? Yeah, 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 forget about it. All right, fine.
1: I didn't forget
0: about it. I never forgot about it. And it ripened. In fact, now that I look back retrospectively, I kind of say, no, I have a different kind of terminology. That was the beginning of the opening of the third eye. Maybe both sixth and seven. I'm not really sure. But certainly the sixth. And I kind of mused at that. And then... I started reading Upanishads. Mm-hmm.
2: And I feel that that
0: kind of finished me off. <laughs> you know. Um, and it opened up other centers inside me. And I had that kind of unified field experience we were kind of talking about before. Mm-hmm. And my life from that point on became, you could say, spiritualized. And I had an appreciation of things that I had not had before. Everything broadened. And so I feel like I owe a tremendous debt to love them uh, because that was the beginning of a door opening for me. And that right yes, into my practice of meditation when I was about 21 and on, and on and on to right now. And I'm grateful for the journey because I think it's got so much uh <laughs> there's so much life force to it, so I'd love to come back to um
2: this idea of
0: the uh east being the west when i was and i also by the way studied Chinese medicine I'm one of the first non non-MDs in New York State to get license as an acupuncturist so I, I kind of went into somewhat deep into the uh ancient Chinese understanding um in fact, at that time, I was also a psychotherapist with Yumi and Lenis, and I wrote a paper for my Chinese medicine school called East Meets West. Who is Getting Needles? <laughs> I always kind of like that. <laughs> actually, because should have, that
2: should have been the title of our book. <laughs> know, you can follow it if
0: you want, just give me credit. <laughs> That's great. Um I was always interested in this conflict, in this, you know, unio-mystico. You know, and, um, this idea that we can penetrate each other's psyches and fill in sort of a uh, global yin-yang or anima-anima where we come together and fulfill our wholeness as humans because we've integrated in the West, the Eastern Perspective and the Eastern perspective has integrated ours. So from the Taoist point of Elijah, maybe you can speak to this. And sure. What you saw as the reception of the Western view of Taoism when you were there at the temples.
1: So uh, first let me just say that... Uh, the story that you just told about your own awakening is actually, I mean, nobody likes to be put into a type, but that, that's pretty common among people who, you know, How dare you. Now. <laughs> they, come, you know, they have, uh, they read the Lao, you know, and, and it sort of happened to me too. I read the Lao uh, for the first time in high school, and I didn't have a sort of a powerful mystical experience, but it was certainly something that affected the rest of my life. Uh, but a lot of other people read it and, and had experiences, or sometimes people would have, Sort of powerful unitive experiences with nature, and then later read a book on Taoism and say, "Oh, this describes what I had. I didn't have any name for this kind of feeling that I had." In the other doing. order, yeah, yeah. And then they would read something about Taoism and say, "Oh, now I get it. I'm a Taoist. I didn't even know it this whole time." <laughs> right. Um, and uh and uh, you know a lot of people might might read the the Dao Te Jing and then a little bit later start practicing Tai Chi and somehow those feel the same, even though you know the the Dao Te Jing is very old and Tai Chi is relatively recent um and uh you know China is a big country and lot's going on, but those two things coming together really makes kind of a core of the experience that of been really uh, influential for a lot of a lot of uh, American Taoists if you just wanna they may not call themselves American Taoists they might say, Well I follow the Tao but I'm just calling them, you know, if they if their lives have been influenced by, by Taoism then, then then I'll I'll call them American Taoists as, you know, just as a way of, of identifying that group. And I think they should I think they should be proud of They should come out, you know, they're be proud to be a Taoist. Yeah. Um, so, and I also want to comment a little bit on what you were saying about, you know, kind of Jung and his idea of, you know, um, unifying the East and West for a sense of, you know, kind of a union analysis. Yeah, Jung's kind right. of
0: uh, lexicon too. exactly, yeah, yeah. And
1: Jung was one of the first people. I mean, he he was so interested in Chinese internal alchemy, and he he did. Indeed. The, you know, um, and he saw something there that, that the West, West could learn from. So, so I want to say two things. First is just kind of a warning not to essentialize, you know, to, I think we have a tendency to label, you know, the East as kind of mystical and natural and the West logical and analytic. Uh, And so bringing together East and West would be great, but then if you do that, you're kind of stereotyping because there's lots of mysticism in the West. There's lots of mysticism in the Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition, and there's plenty of of technology and science in the East and logic, right? So – People, I'm not saying you do that or we do that yeah, here in, in this room. room, but I've heard, I've heard people kind of make those generalizations. Yeah, people make those generalizations. and I always kind of like, I always kind of bristle a little bit at that because sure. no, But what's it's interesting where I do you think that. It is that in, on an individual psychological level, bringing those things together using East and West in oneself can be very powerful. Yeah. You no. Know, um I think if you're looking at it on a cultural global level, then you're kind of doing stereotypes. But if you if it works for you individually, then that is a very powerful thing. Absolutely. So, so yeah. um I'm, I'm actually the question, question that you asked is about what was the reaction of the uh of the Chinese Taoist monks and priests in China to the Western Taoist? Correct. Okay. Well, the the person to answer that question question is David, David, because he spent lots of time talking to the Taoist priests. After After the the Dreamstrippers went back back home, he stayed, because he he lives in Hong Hong. Kong, it's very easy for him to get to China. He goes there all the time, and he spent hours just drinking tea with these Taoists um, and having interesting conversations.
2: Right. So, actually, actually this was really interesting, because... um, uh, so actually, well, actually, can I ask you, when you were, when you were at Huashan, what kind of, um, uh, did you meet with any of the monks there? Or did they greet you and receive you? And was there any difference actually in 2000? You went twice, right? twice. Yeah. And so what happened when you, uh, what kind of things happened when you were with Dallas monks at Huashan? Shan, if you can remember? I do remember some of them uh-huh, uh-huh. there was
0: one lovely gentleman who did a fair amount of hiking with
2: us uh-huh, uh-huh.
0: and I'm so sorry I'm forgetting his name but you know
2: uh-huh. forgive, forgive me lord <laughs>
0: or that was deity um, but he we became actually quite buddy buddy uh-huh. and um, we spent a fair amount of time and his English was okay
2: uh-huh.
0: uh, Michael would know instantly who it is I'm referring to uh-huh. My overall take, sitting at tables at various temples, and there were several of them over the course of the two trips, I found that some of the Taoist monks were slightly academic uh, in their approach. And granted, a lot of this was being translated or it was broken English. we We were were getting getting it second-hand secondhand and maybe sometimes third-hand, even though we were sitting right at the table with them. uh, There were definite language issues. But you would have to read into the nonverbal communication and into the overall of the situation. And in doing that, I found that there was a lot that we have to learn from Um, them, frankly. And and while in my case, Michael, Michael, who has been my my main guide guide on this part of my journey, uh, uh, understands a lot, and I'm very impressed with his reformulation of a lot of Taoist Taoist understanding and worldview into Western Western lexicon, I'd say. And And even to some extent, scientific. In, in our hours. science, I, I think, think that there, there are, are also other aspects, aspects of the practice and the history that I haven't have yet been metabolized metabolism. in the way. And I think also conversely, I don't. I'm sorry, it sounds a bit general. Things that I, I think, think might, since we we're sort of talking about that because of the dream trips and all of that that Michael has not come to understand, that they don't. It really is a two-way street. And uh, overall, I think that I sense that there was a slight more rigidity in the Taoist monks of China than I sensed on our slightly more free-floating 60s-esque kind of review, if you will, uh, but I think there's some value to that. Does that help to address something?
2: Right. Yeah. So then to build a little on that, of course, part of the um, what you sensed as the rigidity um, is related to simply, um, you know, the period of interaction with them not having been very long, and in China to. Build up, there's this long process of relationship building that leads to opening up. And the first presentation, the initial presentation, is not going to be 60s esque, you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, the Taoist monastic institution is still very traditional. In fact, even more so than uh, common Chinese um, culture now, it's very traditional in its notions of hierarchy and so on, and so that's, I think that's part of the, that kind of initial contact. Now, so, but after having chatted with these Dallas, right, again and again every year, um, and so I'm listening to, and and as I speak fluent Chinese, so even right after the dream trips, and i was like, oh, what do you think of these guys, right? Well, uh.
0: <laughs>
2: and so basically, you know, of course they're very, um, there's one basic um, presupposition among Chinese Taoists and even Chinese people in general, even those who about Americans about Americans and Chinese people in general who don't know actually anything about Taoism. But if you're not Chinese, there's just no way you can understand anything about Tao. So this is the 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 the. There's a
0: fundamental prejudice. There is a
2: fundamental prejudice now, but they're very happy that you're coming to, that you're interested in it, that you want to know more about it. And so they start off, the encounter begins with deep condescension, I have to say, Um, but it's warm and benevolent and generous condescension to share, <laughs> you know, to share some some elements of Dao to these uh, uh, foreign groups. Yes, to these foreign groups. Now, um, and uh, and so that's one of the pre- preconceptions. But I'll tell you in a minute how actually that changed uh, among some of the Chinese Daoists, but that's one. And then another thing that they would say is that
1: um, because they see that,
2: that you're coming and, and you come from, uh, you know, as Elijah was saying, you too, with uh, the entrance into looking and approaching Taoism is through these practices, such as Tai Chi, uh, Qigong, and the martial arts, or Chinese medicine. And they coming from the Taoist the tradition, which is called the Order of Complete Perfection, the Quanzhen, the monastic order, uh, in that tradition, they consider these techniques to be the lower order thing in Taoism. Um, and what really matters, there are a few things that really matter. Uh, and first is cultivation of what they call your xin, xin your heart. Okay? So you're, is going in the
0: direction of virtue?
2: Yes, going in the direction of virtue. So your heart and virtue. Uh, and you have to start with pure virtue and morality, okay? Now, 60s-ish, kind of American, not really interested. that. It's kind of churchy, you know, and they're totally into it, okay? And you've got to start with that. That's the foundation, and only when you accept that and you live by that then you can start looking at higher levels of cultivation. So the virtue thing.
0: I actually very much like that.
2: Yeah, so that's one. And then the um, lineage, okay? So the idea that if you don't have a lineage, I mean, you need to be part of a lineage because there's something that gets transmitted through the transmission of a lineage. Um Um, so there's virtue, there's lineage, even ritual, okay, yes, that you need to burn incense to deities and this kind of thing, that's part of the humility that you gain, um, that you, um, uh, that you put yourself, the virtue of humility humility to a higher power, so these kinds of things, so they were telling me, without these things, all of these practices, all of the chi, and all that is useless it's useless so now they were willing to humor these americans by sharing a few techniques the shining heart i don't know if they taught it in your group but one um you know this kind of thing but from their perspective that was simply a benevolent gift of a little thing you know because that's what you're interested in um and it will help you to come closer to the Tao. um but you're very, 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 very far from it. So that's the basic attitude. But, okay, and as a result, with the long years of conversations, other things come out, okay? And so, um, first of all, um, they, those monks who interacted uh, more with, Repeated groups of dream trippers. Uh, I would say they were touched by the sincerity of American or Western uh, practitioners and seekers. Um, because many of the Chinese um, who come to these monasteries. Uh, actually they 're coming with very instrumental uh and material needs, you could say you know, yeah, I was talking about those deities, and even they say it 's important to worship deities, but most people go to these deities for financial problems, health problems, very you know very mundane, mundane problems, not really interested uh in anything other than that um and then there are those who um uh, um, are and this is where they would maybe have a bit of a struggle, you know. So the Chinese who are interested in more than mundane issues, who are interested in Tao. So now, when the Chinese are interested in Tao, a a lot of them might be interested in gaining um, actually kind of spiritual powers. So maybe it's less mundane, but it's ego. It's the ego thing. And so some of the monks who are interested in a real spiritual cultivation, they don't like that. But on the other hand, though, there's also a kind of element of, similar to guru, devotion, or, uh, you know, so a a Chinese Taoist monk with those kinds of people can, you know, start to strut their stuff, right, and have that following, and, and, you know. But the Western, uh, even the most sincere, and uh, uh, the Americans, they don't treat those masters like anything special. And Michael Wynn even argues with them, you know, as if we're colleagues. You know, he's like, hey, as you said, you said, you know, Michael Wynn or, you know, you you know, some of these Americans have read, they've practiced, they have all kinds of experience, and they start shocking as if they're like like professional colleagues, you know, as equals. They don't like that, you know. And they're like, oh, all these Americans. You know, they're always, or, you know, either they're, they're challenging or they're just constantly asking questions. Why? Why this? Why that? You have to explain. You have to rationalize. You have to, whereas, you know, so one Master Hu, you know, he was saying, whereas the Chinese, they are shen xin bu that means a deep faith without questioning. And the thing is that you have a better energy field, right? When people are not, they're, you know, they're not constantly in their it's mind, eyes, arguing, you know, right. you, even if they're not saying no, they're just going instantly into that energy field. So, actually, they kind of struggle with these two different, you know, but I felt that they were, you know, because I noticed that master who, one of them, you know, after the second time I went with one of the dream trips, and that time he was all so preened in his fast roads and everything and you could really sense and he even said it the, the chi the energy field was so good when we were with the when he was sharing his stories on the immortal fairies nine heavens and all of this kind of stuff and the dream trippers were starry eyed on in the temple on the cliff and it was like bedtime stories and, and everybody the chi was flowing it really was and he so the next time he was in his in his element i wouldn't say his Sunday best but oh no his Dow best you know so you could see and another one uh talks about how um i mean he didn't know anything about the backgrounds of uh, american and western uh, dream trippers you know but up in his caves and he says ah you americans uh you just spend your whole lives going around the world in pursuit of doubt. Whereas the occasional Chinese who comes up, you know, so far up to these caves, they come with their money problems, and they come with their health problems, and these are the things that I went up here to get away from. I don't want to talk about these things. And so you guys are just... He thinks you're spending all your time just going around in pursuit of doubt. So, um... Um, And then, you know, there's the element of all all of these traditional issues of lineage and virtue, morality and ritual. But in the monastic uh, institution in China, well, actually, a lot of these things are uh, the virtue is not necessarily there. Um, The lineages may be broken. And so that's where we felt that, you know, there was actually real communication was going on because um, uh, you know, among some of the Taoist monks, uh, that world that they're living in is a broken world, actually. Those traditions uh, have have been broken. And so that's what's interesting is that um, we felt that some of the dream trippers, you know, they're looking for some kind of connection to something in China. The... You know, they, as you said, you know, you're saying there's something to learn. So there is, um, you know, there's the other side, condescension on the part of some of the Americans, too, who say we have freedom in America. So the Tao, we have it. It's all gone in China, right? The commies just uh, broke it all, nothing there. The true Tao is in America. So we've seen, you know, we So the condescension is on both sides, right? And that's interesting. And that's interesting. So we see the condescension on both sides, but I also saw there was also openness on both sides, and, and there's a process of communication that actually something happens, uh, and that was interesting to see.
0: Very interesting. Very interesting. I'm just remembering back to the images of what it was like to be there, some memories of walking and talking and mainly listening and Following the overall dynamics. And in light of what you're sharing here, David, I'm reflecting back on those, we haven't even mentioned much about the influence of communist China in the Taoist tradition and how it, you know, in my understanding, seriously uh, disrupted it and almost stopped it. Flowing almost altogether.
2: In fact, I remember,
0: and you both would probably remember exactly where this was, by next to one monastery, there was a train that was very deliberately placed so that every 10 or 20 minutes you would hear the train going through. And I remember we were sitting in meditation and it was so disruptive, we knew that it was a complete setup of just. Dallas er, by a modern technology. Do you what, ma- what
1: mountain? Was that? Yeah, that was that's the base of Washan It is uh, the base of Washan, yeah. yeah, that's the Jade Spring Temple. That's right, exactly. Uh, and yeah, it's like the a, the a, a government who put the train in It's kind of like a giant fu because it separates them. Exactly, it, it interrupts the feng shui of the temple into the mountain. It separates it from the mountain. Like yeah. And and the noise, like you said. So And that's where we
0: stayed in that very communist hotel, I remember. Oh yeah, the main, in the town Do you remember there, that?
1: that yeah, yeah. It was yeah, so like, old so. world, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um so yeah, I think I mean in terms of um the the, what the communist government has done to Taoism And uh, you know, I mean, there was a, a long period uh, Where almost any religious practice was forbidden And so uh, when, when the communists started allowing religions To come back and to flourish in China Starting in, in the early 80s um, There was a whole kind of missing generation There was a huge kind of knowledge gap Um, And so you had some very, very young Novice monks coming in And then you had some very, very old monks From, you know, before the communist revolution But you didn't have, usually in a In a religious institution, it's the people In their 50s who are like the the Leaders, you know, they're the 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 elders Yeah, those did not exist, the elders that you did have Were in their 80s and were kind of senile Right, and um, Were traumatized, and then you had a bunch Of youngsters, so you have that Missing generation And now, you know, China is, you know, the Chinese government is encouraging religious practice, but it's also managing it. You know, it allows it to take place in certain places, you know, within the monastery, but not really outside of the monastery walls. And they they're they're,
0: containing it.
1: Yeah, they're containing it, and it has a tourist value, right? Right.
0: right. I.e., a commercial value.
1: Yeah, they see the tourist potential for all these, and sometimes the. The needs to you know to kind of do tourism development at these Dallas Mountains conflicts with the needs of a of a religious organization of a spiritual group. So, um, but it's I mean there is definitely a religious revival going on in China now. I mean with the, with Taoism, but also Buddhism, Christianity, uh, new religions. I mean there is something going on in China. And is this being allowed? Yeah, I mean the government, the government wants says, to. I mean I again constrain it, uh, to take hold of it, but they know it's going on. And I mean, I think, you know, recently the government has seen the revival of religious practice as being a, a nice antidote to the kind of rampant materialism. I think in the 80s and 90s, the Chinese government unleashed the forces of of materialism they said everyone get rich and everyone got rich but then it was too much and there was so much corruption there was pollution there was you know just a lack of human decency and now they're like well maybe some religion is good um but it's a balancing act
2: and actually the good religion in the term of the chinese government is primarily buddhism and daoism uh, so of course there's still a lot of um the state management uh, and regulation of religion is still pretty tight in China. But now there's, uh, you know, as Elijah was saying, there's a sense that um, uh, religion is not, not entirely a bad thing. It can be a good thing. And now there's a, a, what with the rising, um, we could say, nationalism in China and also greater self-confidence and a fear of the growth of Christianity in China, which is growing very fast. So there is an increasingly,
1: not quite
2: entirely explicit, but increasingly obvious preference on the part of the Chinese government for Taoism uh, and Buddhism. Um, and so the, the limitations and controls are, are, are uh, uh, um, to some extent, loosening on those religions compared to on Christianity, uh, which is tightening.
0: Very interesting. I'd like to circle back to the entire idea of virtue and the heart as the primary first step and foundation practice. It actually reminds me, uh, it's a different type of analogy, but uh, back when I started studying with uh, Lou Kleinsmith and Professor Ching Ching's school down in Chinatown called Shijun, 87 Bowery. I'll never forget it. Um, And with Bob Loomish, uh, Lou's main student. There was this idea of comparing Tai Chi Chuan to meditation, just because it was part of our conversations of people that were interested in some level of self-cultivation. And The general thought was, if you can be so still as to be putting your attention and maintaining it at the dantian, the center, during movement, you have already mastered. I'm using that word very broadly, by the way. uh, Some of the uh, necessities of meditation. To maintain and sustain a quiet mind, so each one, from that point of view, was already a, an advanced step of meditation, and we didn 't even talk about each one as a walking, moving meditation, frankly, for whatever reason that school didn 't care for that phrase, even though in many ways it really was uh, and so From that point of view, I'm reminded, I was reminded of that, David, when you were talking about uh, virtue. So it's sort of like before you can even start talking about Tao as in an energy field developing in the body and for the health of the body, if you don't have a sense of virtue, i.e. integrity, patience, humility, compassion, understanding, Love, kindness, beneficence. If you don't have these qualities, you're just wasting your time, which is kind of part of the expression playing with yourself. This is not a game. This is about the development of human character, which of course means the development of virtue. So it's an interesting thing. And of course, you know, this is kind of idea, like we're talking about, you know, yeah, this is cool. And Esalen, we're in the hot tub. Let's you know move the chi up our microcosm orbit. This is cool. Oh, look at that girl over there. You know, on one hand, but the Dallas, and you can understand them. know number
1: Qigong fever of the you know of the late 80s and 90s that David was describing these mass Qigong movements do have a uh, a real similarity to you know these kind of Pentecostal revival movements. I mean they call it you know healing the spirit uh, in Chinese would be the qi but both are uh, associated with the idea of uh, you know spirit means breath, the Holy, you know, I mean, and qi means breath. So I mean theologically or ontologically there could be some kind of something similar going on, even though you know maybe neither side would, would recognize it. Uh, But, um, yeah, we don't want to tire out your listeners with too too much information here, but I do want to say that – Oh, that's okay. (laughs) Don't worry. You know, I want to say that whatever is happening with this exchange between, you know, American or Western Dallas and Chinese Dallas, I mean, this is – this is a, we're really just on the ground for her. This is something big that's happening, and it's just sort of starting out. I mean, you know, it's been maybe going on for 15 or 16 years, which is nothing in terms of the life of, a, of a, you know, um, something like Taoism. Um, so whatever, you know, and then as, as David was saying, as the Chinese government wants to value and promote Taoism more, as more and more Americans hear about Taoism, as more uh, real Taoist masters are invited to come to the West, um you know we don't we don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be exciting
0: i think so I think so it's already exciting, you know I would like to go back to i thank you very much elijah i really appreciate all of that input, circling back as I started before I went off on the uh, evangelical uh, <laughs> the digression um what would you say about this idea of virtue when you talked about the broken virtue and broken lineages, et cetera, that there's a distinction then between what might be the ideal Tao, and Taoist, I should say, and what's actually happening on the ground in the temples, because humans are humans, and even in Confucian times. In fact, hearing you talk about this, I'm actually reminded of Confucius, about right relationship, you know, and You know, it shouldn't come as a surprise, and we love naming things, and we love idolatry in reality.
2: It's pretty obvious
0: that that's a human phenomenon as well. Um, But what would you have to say about uh, that distinction between the ideal image of virtue being really embodied and then opening up the practices of cultivation versus what you really see going on?
2: So, um I think uh we can um think about uh no, I can't remember the exact wording in the Lao in the Dao Jing, but um you know, some parts which actually um talk about uh you know, in the first line it's uh Dao Fatzi and the Tao is uh, the Dao follows uh, spontaneity and then it goes down a few lines and it talks about, in a sense, it's saying, and this spontaneity is of higher than virtue, and this virtue is higher than righteousness, and this righteousness is higher than ritual, or something like that, right? I can't remember the exact, or there's like a hierarchy there. And this is known as being one of the most anti-Confucian polemical statements uh, in the Tao Te right? It's going against, right, the Confucians are always going off on their morality and their virtue and blah, 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 but we have we're above that, right? However, if we look at the practice of Taoism in China and also the way that it has been um, uh, articulated and uh, expressed in different Taoist traditions in China, there shouldn't be a, a dichotomy here. So in other words, there's the idea that I mean, it goes both ways. So first is you start with, you know, you start with Li, you start with righteousness, and then you advance to virtue, and then you advance to beyond virtue, right? So that's one way. And the other way is the other way around, if you don't have, you know, if you're not with Tao, then you'd better, you're still better off with uh, virtue, and if you don't have virtue, you're still better off with following ritual, right, so it's not saying, right, and righteous, so it's not saying just throw out one, you know, I'm going to get rid of all of that in order to have my Taoist spontaneity, right, so this is uh, one aspect of the, I think, uh, as we can see it in the history of Taoism in China, is that although there's a gradation there, but it's not a dichotomy where you ditch one in order to get the other. Um, and um, uh, and then there's also the, um, and maybe this is where still there's something of uh, enlightenment for, or insights for Westerners and their understanding of, uh, of virtue um, is, that the um uh, right following um or aligning oneself with Tao leads to a natural or spontaneous arising of uh, of virtue right so this is virtue that you're not deliberately uh forcing on people or um not a rigid rigid kind of virtue, but actually it's something that you just naturally become virtuous without even thinking about it, right? So I think think that's
0: what Lao Tzu always meant.
2: Exactly. So that's what Lao Tzu meant. Um, But, you know, Master Chen, Chen Yuming, one of the monks that uh, he greeted the green trippers, and actually he found there was not enough virtue in the monastery, so he stopped becoming a monk. He returned to secular life to become an urban hermit. But then, I mean, all he's he from Huashan, from and you may
0: have—that's him.
2: I'm sure that it was. I Was
0: referring to earlier.
2: Yeah, if you but met then, him in the first dream trip, because he was no longer there when you say. If you say you went there in 2011, he was no longer there. But in the first time you went, he was probably still there, and so he was the one. Now,
0: but I think he came to meet us, but as a non-monk, and we went possibly to. Uh, Doing some kind of martial arts visits at a couple of schools. I'm beginning to think he
2: may. Have. Yeah, then probably not him. Yeah. Anyway, so but, but I know who yeah exactly yeah
0: to Master
2: so Chen yeah yeah Chen Yiming So um, so he uh, so this idea in the way he uh, teaches about Taoism, the way he talks about Tao is on the one hand he is talking about that. Um uh, right, nurturing um uh that purity of heart, that stillness in the heart, which leads you to be spontaneously virtuous so but but always emphasizing right, you know, when we talk about the free and carefree kind of crazy Taoist, and he says, but that taoist is carefree with other people. And kind of crazy with other people and going the flow but he's working on himself he's not just letting himself go and following his passions and this kind of thing so there's a deep misunderstanding that he's saying about Taoism is just about go with the flow because um in actually in daoism
0: i understand uh-huh
2: Flow. In fact, there's one flow in your life. It's the flow toward death, right? Your dissipation, right? You're dissipating your energies. You're dissipating your life through all of your pursuits that go against your, your passions and desires that go against your true nature. And so that's the flow. You know, you following, you're going with that flow, and after you're dissipating. You're dissipating your life, and you're leading yourself to your your death destruction so you've got to go the reverse flow right the reverse flow back to your original nature um, and that means actually
1: no longer flowing down
2: these paths of dissipation so he says be careful what kind you know when you say go with the flow and do you know be who you are and um, and uh be who you wanna be and be who you wanna be well, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the first step for
0: stopping that
2: dissipating flow and going to the flow back to your original embryo right to your 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 to the source of life is to let go of those um um right of those attachments which are those attachments that block our virtue right. So yeah there's a whole um uh so there's a whole real um uh, literature, li- or a whole understanding of how you deal with uh, virtue and how you work with that in a way that is um more than a dogmatic uh, uh kind of uh, preaching on on virtue yeah you
0: know uh, I'm listening and I hear that there are very similar great parallels in Buddhist practice as well to everything that you're saying here, most everything having to do with uh, virtue being the base before you can to the Bodhisattvic or Tantric levels, Vajrayanic levels, just not available. And yes, there's that spontaneity that Lao Tzu talks about which is on the Tantrica level that, you know, it's like not good, not bad just spontaneously arising. That's a whole other mm-hmm. interesting conversation itself, but it's so interesting that there are these markers, if you will, and perspectives that are mirrored one religion to another, and even in Christianity. I mean, I'm just thinking out loud, but there's the idea of and Judaism following the book or Spontaneous recognition of what's right, what's not. You know, what's virtuous and what's not. You know, it's just kind of interesting. I'd like to, we have a few more minutes if I could, you know, uh, continue with you. Um, I set this for 90 minutes, actually, because I had a feeling we were going to be going further. It's a thick book. <laughs> and, uh, that is, uh, this idea, idea about the origin of Taoism. We, we kind, kind of technically, technically refer to Lao well, as the father of Taoism uh, because of the Tao Te Ching. But, but then, then there are the idea of the, the immortal and the, the many heavens, heavens
2: and Wu um, Wei
0: <laughs> and you've got <laughs> things that seem to historically very much predate and then we've also even got the origins of Chinese medicine, which also predates if you go really go back so could you comment on that
2: Well, just how the, you
0: see that, or what is the general understanding from either the American point of view or Chinese uh,
2: well, I guess briefly um uh, because um. Right, Taoism. I mentioned earlier about different messages and revelations and so on, but Taoism is not a single revealed religion as it's understood, let's say, in Judaism, Mormonism. Christianity, uh, Islam, Mormonism, or so on. So, um, so what 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 is Taoism? What we now call Taoism? Yeah, extremely decentralized. And what we call Taoism is the result of the gradual systematization over time, of all these different kinds of traditions that really, we can't really, they just are so old, and we can't really know, uh, I mean, in the archaeological record, it's possible to reconstruct certain things and so on. But, so all kinds of things that were already happening um, by the 5th century BC, when uh, Laozi is known to or or reputed to, we don't really know even if there was such... uh, I thought
0: he was more considered uh, in 750
2: or so BC. Um, I can't remember the exact uh, oh, the exact oh, dates, but around that. <laughs> time. don't you know. Exactly <laughs> okay. Um, but, uh, but even you know the the the, the figure yeah. of Laozi, we, we still don't really know. There you know there 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 there's a few records and so on. But um, the 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 constitution of what we call Taoism is the result of a gradual systematization. Um, uh, institutions that came into being through uh, claimed revelations, such as Zhang Daoling, the Heavenly Masters, and other groups that intercommunicated with each other, uh, also under the influence of the Han Dynasty. And so the unification of the Chinese Empire also leads to the gradual unification of its different traditions. Um, and actually the, the impact of Buddhism, So Buddhism led to, you know, a lot of Chinese weren't happy when Buddhism came in. And some of these indigenous traditions, you know, there were these Buddhists missionized. They were missionizing, saying, we have Buddha, we have the Buddhism, and it's better than what you guys have. And so they gradually acquired their own self-identity, which became known as Taoism. And so the impact of Buddhism led to a stronger sense of self-identity, you know, of all those oh, dispersed...
0: polarization. Exactly,
2: of these more or less dispersed Chinese traditions to be increasingly known... Unified.
0: unified. Unified
2: with a common identity, which is that called Taoism. with
0: the Muslim invasion of India also, right, 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 the right. And the Hindu, which right, right, is right, right, a right, way right. of living. And,
2: yeah, so that's why, um, in a sense, um, it's really hard to you know, define, define this is Taoism and this is not right, um you've answered it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: it. I yeah, appreciate yeah, yeah. that. So in short, it <laughs> doesn't have a beginning. <laughs> <laughs> and probably it, it doesn't, doesn't have, have an end. end. <laughs> 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 so, well, last words Elijah for our audience.
1: Uh well it's been a great ninety minutes. It's flown by, um, talking and I you know, I mean I hope uh People will consider going online, buying this book, Dream Trippers, by. Uh, and where would they go? Uh, I mean, you can get it on Amazon. Um, you can get it at the University of Chicago uh, Press website. They're the people who, who publish it. Um, and I hope that they people read it and think about it. It's the kind of book that you can kind of flip open almost at random. There's a lot of stuff in there. Sort I mean, of like the Jing, e. huh? Yeah, yeah, it is. This is a book that we both. Deeply influenced by yes. um, A lot of the stuff we talk about today Is in is it, it? Yeah. But also, also a lot of other stuff You know, a lot more about uh, the, the general history of Taoism um, How Taoism became the way it is A lot about um, kind of the history of American spirituality What we call American spiritual individualism um, There are stories about on Flower Mountain itself And some, some, some history of that, of that place um, from the very, very beginning to the, to the 20th century.
2: And there's a lot of interesting, an interesting cast of characters yeah. who have their arguments, their conflicts.
1: So, uh, yeah, so we've kind of written it like a novel. I mean, we're not novelists, we don't make any claims, but there's a lot of rich description in there and a lot of kind of spiritual biographies of people like Michael Lynn and also of these Dallas months. So, very interesting.
0: Well, Elijah Siegler and David Palmer, I want to just thank you both so much for being on today and sharing your book, DreamTrippers, with our audience. It's fascinating.
2: Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mitchell. It's been a great time. We've had a great time, yes. yes.
0: And not least, I want to thank my dear friend Michael Wynn for introducing us. And we'd
2: like to thank him, too, yes, for all the help uh, that we've had and in yeah, doing those for providing the basis yeah. of the book. Yeah, it could have happened without him. Thanks. Thanks
0: again, everybody. Uh, I'm at mjr at dot net. mjr at dot Please write to me, share your thoughts and feelings, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.